Cause we got the alternative energy Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello and welcome, I'm K.A. This week's Radioactive Show has been recorded and produced on the unceded lands of the Wadjuk Noongar, or better known as Perth, for 3CR Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Last week I hosted for the Conservation Council of Western Australia the fourth Yellow Cake Country webinar, Don't Nuke the Climate, where we delved deep into the current federal energy debate, busted myths on the new nuclear technology, and presented energy solutions to the climate crisis we face. It was a timely and important webinar as we await the release of the final report from the review of the National Environmental Law, the EPBC Act, or the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. And today I will play highlights from some of the speakers, Josh Wilson, Federal Member for Fremantle, Tim Buckley from the Institute for Energy Economics, and Mia Pepper from the Mineral Policy Institute. Obviously, when we talk about nuclear power as part of the nuclear spectrum, and, and the use of uranium spectrum, uh, you, can, you can talk about the science, you can talk about the economics, uh, you can talk about the politics, you can talk about the geopolitics and the sort of the, um, the relationship between the military use of uh, nuclear energy, uh, nuclear technology, and, of course, the civilian use of it. Uh, I'm going to confine myself to the politics and, I guess, just give a little bit of a catch-up of what's happened at the federal parliamentary level over the last 12 months. In terms of the Australian political scene, after the election last year, the coalition had an internal problem because there are a number of people within the coalition that continue to be uh, adherents of the sort of, what you know, the nuclear energy fantasy, the nuclear energy um, mythology. And... Uh, and they were agitating within the coalition. And one of the key agitators was the member for New England, Barnaby Joyce. Barnaby Joyce is, isn't part of the coalition ministry anymore, but he he has the chairpersonship of a committee and he made it clear that he was intent on holding an inquiry into nuclear energy. And uh, the government was concerned about that. This, these are my views. I mean, the government hasn't explained all of this, but these, this is my interpretation of what happened. And I think it's a... It's a pretty sound interpretation. The government was concerned that Barnaby Joyce was going to uh, set up his own travelling nuclear circus and it decided instead to give the inquiry to the um, House Committee for Energy and Environment, which is chaired by Ted O'Brien, the member for Fairfax. And it did that because it, it regarded that committee process as being something it could control better than if, if Barnaby had been running around doing his version. So I'm the deputy chair of that committee. It was the first piece of work uh, that we took on. At the, in the time that, that we live, really, the last thing we need to spend time in, in a significant committee like that, in my view, is going round and round the Maypole again on, on this question of the viability of um, nuclear energy. Uh, you know, one of the, the most ridiculous things that gets said relentlessly is that we need to keep having a conversation about nuclear energy. We, we've done nothing but have conversations about nuclear energy. Nobody is prevented from having that conversation anytime they like. Uh, there was a, another, I think, sh- quite shallow uh, op-ed on the, in the pages of The Australian Today, uh, making all the same baseless uh, arguments for nuclear energy. People can do that whenever they like. 
the Committee for Energy Environment should have been doing something much more useful and pertinent, but instead we were given this uh, this committee inquiry and off we went. Uh, all that the inquiry achieved from a substantial point of view was to confirm that there is no case whatsoever for nuclear energy in Australia. Um, there's just no two ways about it. One of the first people who appeared before us was Dr Ziggy Switkowski. Uh, Dr Switkowski had conducted the previous review for the Howard government at the federal level back in 2006. Uh, at that time, uh, Dr Switkowski felt that there, there could be a case for, for nuclear in Australia. Well, he came and gave evidence before our committee in December last year and said quite clearly that, that there is no case and that over the last 10 years... Uh, any any sort of vague or or um, marginal reasons for being open minded about it had really disappeared, and so from from person after person after person, we heard uh, a common tale essentially that that nuclear energy is um, not commercial, it's uninvestable, it's uninsurable, it is literally the slowest, uh, least flexible, most costly. Uh, most dangerous form of energy, energy generation. There, there, you really cannot find one aspect of nuclear energy that moves it ahead of almost any other form of, of energy generation with, with arguably the, the, the one being this sort of uh, line that nuclear adherents are now taking, that, that it's emission-free and therefore it needs to be considered. That what gives the lie to that argument, of course, is that the people who are arguing for uh, nuclear energy are almost every single one of them in denial about climate change. So, so it's a, it's an absolutely cynical argument that is put that we need to think about nuclear energy if we want to address climate change because the people who are putting it have, have got very little interest in that. And when you get some of the sectoral groups like the the Queen, Queensland uh, Chamber of Minerals and Energy when they say that they would support it and you put it to them that that would mean uh, that the coal industry would literally shut down in a year or two, of course, they, they say they're not interested in that. They, they want nuclear they want nuclear, and they want uranium in addition to coal, in addition to gas. That's, that's the reality of it. But all of the evidence from people who, who understand the science, who are energy policy experts, who are energy system experts, uh, who are, um, have any... Uh, economic expertise make it plain that there's no case for nuclear energy in Australia and that nuclear energy globally is in decline. And I'm sure that the other speakers will point to that. So we went through the process of, of the hearings. In addition to people saying consistently that there was no case for nuclear energy in Australia, they said that the most pressing need uh, was for us to, to adopt a settled national energy policy that would put us on a uh, a rapid uh, carbon emission reduction path and, as a result, would lead to uh, cheaper energy uh, for Australians. We know that the, the absence of national policy and the uncertainty that that brings with it is stymieing investment and stymieing our, our progress towards being uh, a renewable energy superpower. So when we got to the end of the committee process, sadly, the uh, government members had three recommendations and they were that there needs to be uh, more government resources to, to explore the science and the economics of nuclear energy, which was pretty bizarre since we just spent a few months doing that. Uh, and we have plenty of agencies like ANSTO and AEMO and CSIRO 
you know, doing that work, if only the government would stop defunding the, the important ones. Uh, they said that there should be um, a lifting, a sort of a, a lifting of the existing moratorium, a partial lifting, so that it would allow uh, or it would, it would take away the legislative prohibition against small modular reactors. Uh, and it said that the government should consider a, a sort of a nationwide um, awareness-raising education program to, so that people understood better why nuclear energy was, was worth considering. Uh, the Labor members of the committee and also um, the independent Zali Stegall uh, didn't support though all of those recommendations. There was a little bit of difference between my colleague Josh Burns and I and Zali and how we, we approach those, but generally we didn't support those recommendations and we instead put move recommendations to the effect that the government should move swiftly to adopt a national energy policy that would both reduce emissions and create certainty for our uh, energy generation sector going forward and that they should return all of the uh, funding cut from agencies like the CSIRO, et cetera. Needless to say, they didn't support that. Uh, the, the sort of further and better details uh, as far as the the subject matter as a whole and, and the position that that I and Josh Burns took are in our um, dissenting report, which people are welcome to go and have a look at, and uh, and uh, I know that Jim Green is quoted in that that report. I'm not sure about Tim, but Tim certainly provided some very um, important um, evidence and expertise in the course of of our inquiry. Um, and and Zali Stegel herself also lodged a separate sort of dissenting report, which people should go and have a look at if they're interested. So where does that leave us in terms of the politics? Well, uh, the government, I think, was happy that the inquiry did what it did in a fairly rapid way. It, it, you know, it it tasked a committee that it felt wouldn't create the kind of nuclear circus that Barnaby Joyce had in mind, and it required us to report in December, which we did, which in the course of a political year, if you, if, if you table report on the 15th or something of December, that's the very definition of sort of junk time uh, in the annual political calendar. It's sort of a, it's a, it's a tabling date designed to ensure that that work sort of disappears in the pre-Christmas hubbub and then also is regarded as very much 2019. So, so I think it's politically it's possible to take some heart from that. I don't think the present government really has any intention of uh, doing anything about the moratorium. I think there are enough relatively sensible people in the government who know that nuclear energy in Australia is just bananas and, and becomes more ridiculous with every passing month. Uh, but there's no room for complacency. The, the, the government hasn't formally responded to the inquiry yet, but what it did do in its um, technology roadmap, uh, which I think Mark Humphreys very sensibly described as um, the roadmap to the cliff we're driving off or something like that. Uh, they did include small modular reactors in the sort of outer, you know, medium to longer term time frame. They essentially said if SMRs turn out, small modular reactors turn out to be what, what people claim for them, the vendors of, these, of this technology claim for them, then perhaps Australia should look at it. The, the two things I will just end on that we need to be mindful of and ever vigilant, ever vigilant, because this... This is a pernicious technology and there will, as long as there are people who will spruik it, they will just keep finding little inches forward, inches forward all the time. And we have to, we have to jump on that uh, at every turn. We have to speak up and, and, and argue against that at every, at every turn. The 
Minerals Council of Australia did some interesting push polling that they tried to feed into the into the inquiry report, and they've tried to put it around since then. So there are well-funded bodies that, that are in the game of, of trying to create the impression that nuclear energy makes sense. And, and more dangerously, this is where we've got to, I think, in the kind of post-truth 21st century, simply trying to create the idea that people like it, that people are, are that their, their opposition to it is somehow decreasing. That, that alone seems to, to have some political oomph behind it. So they, they did this push poll where, first of all, they identified the people who clearly were not against nuclear and they got rid of them. They then asked everyone whether they liked nuclear. 60% said no. They then told a lot of people a bunch of complete rubbish, like these sort of facts like, yes, did you know that SMRs are cheap and safe? Uh, and then that moved the margin a little bit. They then went back and told people, did you know that a majority of people already support nuclear energy? And that moved even a few more people. And even then they could barely get that poll to just go marginally in favour of nuclear energy. So, yes, anyway, I hope that that's a reasonable overview of of the politics and that particularly around that inquiry and where, where it got to. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. On today's show, we are listening to the highlights from the latest Yellow Cake Country webinar, Don't Nuke the Climate. You just heard from ALP Federal Member for Fremantle, Josh Wilson, and we'll go now to Tim Buckley, who is the Director of the Institute for Energy Economics. Are we touching on, uh, firstly, the economics of nuclear or the financial market's response, just to to pick up on the point that uh, Josh made at the start about the uh, nuclear energy fantasy. So I totally would agree with that phrase. IEFA is a global public interest think tank. We have no funding from any government or any private companies with any vested interest. We're fully funded by philanthropy. So I am just working, as is my entire team, on national interest perspectives as we see them. Reinforce the point Josh has made about the lack of bankability or commercial viability of nuclear or uranium. So, uh, I mean, to my way of thinking, I come from 20 years in the financial markets. I worked for the biggest bank in the world for 20 years. I was managing director there. I know what financial markets, how they operate. This is firstly Paladin Energy, an Australian listed, it's still listed because it hasn't gone bankrupt yet, um, listed Australian mining company. It's down 96% in the last decade. Now, it's pretty pretty hard to destroy 96% of shareholder wealth in just one decade, but Paladin's achieved that, uh, just $6 billion destroyed. But it's not the only uranium stock to have destroyed almost all shareholder wealth in one decade. So Rio Tinto's ERA is down 97% in the last decade. So again, two of the biggest uranium mining companies in the world a decade ago, now they're minnows and they're uh, down 97%. It's pretty hard to find companies down 97% in one decade. Toshiba, Toshiba. Now everyone knows Toshiba to its shareholders lasting regret, Toshiba bought Westinghouse America at early in this decade. They've destroyed massive amounts of shelter wealth uh, before giving up and writing it all off. So they rue the day they ever heard of nuclear energy and made the mistake of moving into it. So Toshiba down 34% in a decade in the Japanese market that's up 150%. So uh, any director involved in that decision, any manager involved in that decision should have um, fallen on their sword very, very quickly, but they didn't, of course. 
Tepco. Tepco, the biggest utility in Japan, it's managed to destroy 86% of shareholder wealth in one decade. Now, Fukushima is obviously a big part of that, but what you're probably not aware of is Tepco got a multi uh, it was a $50 billion bailout by the Japanese government. And then the Japanese government decided that they would also fund all of the rehabilitation of the TEPCO nuclear Fukushima disaster. And so the shareholder wealth destruction here has been in the hundreds of billions of dollars. But of course, that was all socialised onto the poor people of Japan. In KA's opening comments, she mentioned another great wealth destroyer, Cameco of Canada. It's only destroyed half its shareholder wealth in one decade. So uh, it's pretty hard to find industries that consistently destroy 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 99% of shareholder wealth and think that they've got any social license to operate. So uh, when I was asked to uh, present at the nuclear inquiry, I thought it was a joke. Uh, unfortunately, Zali Steggles had to go on there to try and keep some of the loonies in our federal government off that panel, as uh, Josh mentioned. So uh, she requested I present on it nuclear because it is entirely unbankable. It's entirely uncommercial and no one uh, would consider doing it unless they could stick their hand really deeply in a government's taxpayer pocket. I did do a detailed report on the ongoing debacles across the world in nuclear. It, it takes 10, 20 years longer than anyone expects or pretends at the start of the process. And as Jim said, the cost blowouts are in the hundreds of percent, if not 500, 600% or more. Uh, so there are plenty of case studies we detailed in this report. What I thought I might just do in the last few minutes is talk about why I think nuclear is totally unbankable, unviable, and why the financial markets accept that globally. So it's only loonies in the federal government of Australia that think it is a viable proposition. To me, there is one topic which I talk about all the time and I have been talking about for eight years at IEFA, and that is the massive ongoing deflation in renewable energies and the even faster ongoing deflation in batteries. Now, the deflation is global, it's ongoing, it's extreme, and um, it's accelerating. Today, I had the pleasure of listening again to Dr. Martin Green, the founder of the solar industry globally. Now, what Dr. Green was talking about today was how the deflation is accelerating, and he's thinking it'll be double-digit deflation for know, the next five, ten years, and after that, it doesn't matter. Guitar Madani, not someone who, if you've heard me speak at all in the last eight years, you would know Guitar Madani hasn't been my best friend, but um, I think he did a massive mea culpa. What he says is that in the last de- last 40 years, nuclear, sorry, solar energy costs have dropped 40, 99% in the last 40 years, and that they will drop another 99% from where they are today in the next 40 years, such that solar will be virtually free in the long term. And I couldn't agree more with him. It will be virtually free. Adani Green is a company that uh, Guitar Madani founded five years ago. It didn't exist five years ago. Today, it's the biggest company in India. Its stock share price is up 2,000% in the last three years. And it's worth got a market cap of 14 billion US dollars. It's just been stratospheric, the rise and rise and rise So Guitar Madani is 100% committed to solar and to renewable energy, and he is the biggest investor in renewables 
in India. And that point doesn't get brought out in the Australian Murdoch media because, of course, the Murdoch media is pushing fossil fuels. So you only ever hear about Katamadani's stranded asset in the Galilee. You don't hear about the fact he's made $14 billion in renewables in just three or four years. Look at what the stock market globally is telling us. Longy Green Energy Technology of China. It's the biggest solar company in the world. Its shares are up more than 100% in the last three months to $42 billion. Okay, so that's a massive increase for the biggest solar company in the world. Now, why has the stock market gone mad in China, Longy, to the positive? And it's because China is just committed to net zero emissions by 2060 and for China's emissions to peak before 2030. Now, we don't have any details behind it, but what the stock market in China is telling you is that the financial markets in China believe that President Xi's commitment will be substantiated in dramatic form in the five-year plan that will come out in the next couple of months. And so this is a profound global turning point, tipping point. The stock market's betting that China will absolutely drive this home. Now, okay, I've just switched from talking about nuclear to solar, but the reason for that, um, any advocate for new nuclear talks about the importance of nuclear, as exactly as uh, Josh said, claiming that they care about climate science, they they say we need baseload power generation. Now, baseload power generation is a term that really annoys me because when our when our our members of parliament talk about it, they're talking about a solution to the problem that is not relevant anymore. It's at least a decade out of date. Now, let me explain that. And let's take the solar example that I've just given you. Solar prices in a decade will be virtually free. It'll be virtually free. So whenever it's sunny, namely every day of the year, for eight hours or 10 hours of the day, electricity prices will be zero or five or $10 a megawatt hour. We will have so much solar electricity that the price will go to virtually zero. Now, if you run a nuclear power plant, you can only commercially run it, even with massive government subsidies, if you're running at 80 or 90% of the time. In other words, all of the time when it's not down for maintenance. Now, if solar comes along and gouges out 30% of your utilisation rate, all of a sudden you're proposing your nuclear power plant can at best only run 50% of the time. Now, by definition, it was unbankable to start with. It's unviable to start without without government subsidies. And then fast forward 10 or 20 years, you probably won't even have built your new nuclear power plant if you committed today by the time that solar gets to virtually free. So whenever it's sunny, 40% of the 24-hour period, your nuclear power plant is unviable, uncompetitive, and would literally have to be curtailed. And so ultimately, solar will destroy even existing nuclear and existing coal and existing gas over the next 10, 20 years. And so I'll finish by saying, look, I think there's a very strong case for nuclear power plants that are operating today in countries like America or in Europe or in China. Uh, They will continue to operate and we should probably evaluate maximising the length of their operations and then retiring them sensibly before they fail safety issues. But 
Australia, we don't have any nuclear. We never will. It'll never be viable. It's never bankable. And even with the government forking over a $10 billion check, it would still never get built. So uh, I'll stop there. I just think nuclear is an absolute fantasy, exactly as Josh said at the start. Thank you. We'll now listen to Mia Pepper from the Mineral Policy Institute. I just wanted to quickly talk about the Don't Nuke the Climate campaign and its background. The the kind of online presence of the campaign started last year in Australia when uh, the parliamentary inquiry happened in 2019. We said we, we need to respond. Um, and it feels like, you know, we have this debate time and time and time again, but we really need to still just be there and be present. And mostly, you know, this this website, Don't Nick the Climate, is just a, a collation of information from, from different groups and organisations that have done the research and Jim Green is a key contributor um, and on that page is a myth-busting page which I would just highly recommend everyone to get really familiar with um, as we go forward and as you know, we now have uh, small modular reactors in the um, technology investment roadmap, no matter how fanciful it is, it's in there and there are implications to having that in, in the roadmap, um, which I'll touch on just briefly. But I wanted to also just touch on... Um, I guess that the legal issues and the and the what we're facing now in 2020. So the the parliamentary inquiry last year has fed into um, the Environmental Protection, Biodiversity and Conservation Act review in 2020. So the review of our national environmental laws, which happens every decade. So um, I, I don't think it was accidental that the parliamentary inquiry happened the year before. The piece of legislation that that actually has the prohibition on nuclear power in it um, was under review, and so I think it's important to look at the interim report from that review. So that was released in Ju- July this year, and we were happy to see that it didn't recommend lifting the prohibition, but it was fairly agnostic. It didn't say it didn't outline why we shouldn't. Uh, lift that that prohibition or why that prohibition is prudent and I think that's an important omission from from the review because I know there was a lot of submissions made about the risks and risks to our environment which are very real um, and there were there were on that review committee a couple of heavy lifters in the in the pro nuclear scene I suppose so I think that's significant what they did say in that interim report was they outlined that if the prohibition were to be lifted, that it would be a political decision and then they outlined how that might happen. So I guess why the Don't Need for Climate campaign is still important and relevant um, despite how fanciful uh, nuclear power is in Australia is that some of these prohibitions, once they're, they're gone, they're very hard to get back and they're very important to have because if we don't have them, it, it means uh, investment then in um, in advancing new laws to allow for it um, if there are proponents for it and there there clearly are industry people that are chomping at the bit around small modular reactors in Australia. So it's a very dangerous and very expensive distraction from, as we all know, the very real need to, to get a dedicated climate energy policy that addresses the very real risks of climate change. So that the the final report actually comes out in October, um, and so we've seen now that the in the middle of the interim report and the final report, this technology roadmap, and we've also seen the federal government um, try to push forward uh, legislation that would weaken national environmental laws by giving powers over to the state governments, um, and that would not that 
that would have a big impact on uranium mines um, and the way that uranium mines are assessed, which is, is you know, another key driver of the pro-nuclear industry, I think, in, in having the nuclear power debate again and again and again, is just kind of wedging slowly of, of making concessions um, around uranium mining. Um, there's a push to normalise uranium, um, saying, you know, that we're having risk-based policy and, and within that, the risks around uranium could be captured. Um, but we know from the history of uranium mining in Australia that um, there's leaks, spills, accidents. Um, this industry has failed time and time again around um, meeting basic conditions and and uh, regulations requirements and um, failed to rehabilitate. So those those national environmental protections, both for uranium mining and for nuclear power, are very, very important, have been very hard fought for um, and, and we're, you know, quite anxious about not losing them. Um, please, yeah, stay in touch with Don't Nuclear Climate and, and your local environment um, and anti-nuclear groups around around the outcomes from that and, and there may indeed be some follow-up actions that we need to take. But, um, yeah, fingers crossed that they see the writing on the wall as Tim and Josh and Jim do, that this industry is really dead and dying. Yeah, and get on with the real job of getting together a, a strong energy policy. That was Mia Pepper talking about the Don't Nuke the Climate campaign and how you can get involved. So please search don'tnuketheclimate.org.au and I'll put the website in today's notes. And that's all we have time for today. This radioactive show was produced with the support of the Friends of the Earth Nuclear Free Campaign on the stolen lands of the Ghana people for 3CR. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for more news, views on nuclear peace and energy issues.